So uh, I was listening to an interview before you came over with, I didn't even finish it, Tim Ferriss and uh, Cal Fussman, sorry. And Cal Fussman is like somebody that like no, most people wouldn't recognize the name of, but he does an article for Esquire called What I Learned. Mm-hmm. And he just interviews amazing people. And basically, he has the same theory of interviewing that I have um, when I do the interviews for content. I try to remove myself from the interview as much as possible. He doesn't really write a word at all. Just lets them describe themselves. He's done Gorbachev, Donald Trump before he was running for anything. Um, world leaders, rock stars, kind of everyone. And one of the things that he's talking about in there, which I wanted to tell you about, is he's telling this story about uh, Gorbachev. Huh. And he had an interview to do with Gorbachev. And I don't want to spoil it all because I think people should go listen to it. But essentially, he boils this story down with Gorbachev to realizing that the memory of an ice cream cone is the whole reason that he was able to make peace with Ronald Reagan. The memory of an ice cream cone from his childhood. And Gorbachev didn't even realize it until they had this conversation. What? Wow. Isn't that mind-blowing? Yeah, an epiphany mid-interview? That's odd. Right. Huh, that's really crazy. Yeah, it was it was one of those moments where I'm I'm listening to it and I'm going, this is an interview about an interview, mm-hmm. and I'm fascinated. What are your theories on invisibility in interviews? Well, that's funny because, you know, I've done quite a few um, interviews for content as well, and the, the, the tough thing is there are some people who, some people are, are, are easy to talk to and you kind of just let them get the ball rolling. Like you ask them the right questions and you can kind of feel out, um, you can kind of feel out what they want to say. And then you just lead them down that path and you just let them go. And at some point it becomes a snowball and they could talk for an hour about whatever it is that they want to talk about and it's just going to roll on its own. But then there are some people who you literally have to ask them a hundred questions to get 30 answers. You know right. what I mean? And beyond that, too, you have to, you have to, you have to, because obviously when you're, you're, you're doing an interview, at least, at least for me, I'm trying to create some kind of cohesive narrative out of the interview um, so that there's, you know, it, it essentially acts like a three act play. Um, like I remember I did an interview for content for, um, oh, what's the lead singer for Cake again? What's that guy's name? Joel McHale? No, uh, Joel McRae. McRae. Um, is that, I'm not even sure if that's his actual name. Um, regardless, I did an interview for content. Um, and it was one of those things where you could tell that he had done so many interviews and he had talked to so many people um, and people had asked him the same questions over and over and over again. So he had these canned answers um, to very specific questions that you know he, he kind of expected, um, so to speak. And it only really got interesting for me when we started to really talk about his his philanthropic pursuits, his 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 love of music, and how his love of music led him to make some very brave decisions about what he wanted to do with his music career. And um, it it took a while to get there, but it's about it's you know for for me for interviews, I think that the real juice of an interview or the real meat of an interview really comes when you break people out of their not necessarily comfort zones, but you get them into their comfort zones. You know what I mean? Right. Where they feel like you're just hanging out and you're just talking about interesting things versus the, the canned 
one through five answer that they've gotten a hundred times from, you know, 50, 50 different interviews. I love how where I'm going, you always end up talking right to the <laughs> point where, where, I, where I was hoping to, to go. Uh, that's one of the things that, that uh, Fussman says. He says, when you interview, go for the heart. After you get the heart, you'll get the depth that you need with the head. And then once you have the heart and the head, then you get to the soul. Yeah. And I just thought that was brilliant. And that's what he did with Gorbachev. He said he knew he went in there. He was Gorbachev was expecting him to ask about disarmament mm-hmm. and Reagan mm-hmm. and pretty much everything we know about him. But that's not what he asked him. First question he asked him is he said, what's the most important lesson your father ever taught you? And that's how they ended up in this story about huh. the ice cream cone. Wow, that's amazing. And by the way, it's uh, John McRae. John McRae. Jeez, I, I was I said Joel McRae because, well, we should mention Joel McRae more often. He's amazing. Yeah. That also brings up another point. I want to make a few corrections um, <laughs> from last week. <clears throat> and uh, fortunately for you, these are all errors I made. Oh, I've got a few too. Though, that I <laughs> Do got, you? Yeah, okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, first of all. Questlove's book is not Mo Betta Blues. That's a Spike Lee movie. Yeah. But say. his book does reference that. It is Mo Meta Blues. Uh, uh, Radiohead, you were correct. That Bulletproof is on the second album. But that was not the song that I meant. Because I said the wrong <laughs> song title. I meant Prove Yourself. Ah, okay. Which is that is on the first album. Yeah. One of my favorite Radiohead sure, songs. Sure, sure, sure. Apparently not my favorite enough to remember the title. <laughs> <laughs> and also... This one is horrible. How many times did I say the Patricia Arquette, Patricia Arquette experience? It's Rosanna. Rosanna Arquette. Oh. None of it has to do with anything, anything to do with Patricia Arquette, except for the fact that she's hot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, obviously I there's more to she, her as a person. But. I mean, when you were talking about it, like the, the two things that kind of struck me about that one was, number one, Patricia Arquette's way too young to have had a relationship with Peter Gabriel. Yeah, somebody Peter was Gabriel's. imagining that, and it was a very oh, dirty yeah. scene in oh, their I head. Can, I can only imagine. Um, and number two, I, I feel like something that that big, I, I wouldn't have completely missed like that. Right. Yeah, <laughs> Roseanne Arquette doesn't get as much attention as her sister. Mm. She's also older. Um, some people don't even know who she is, which kind of blows my mind, because she was huge. Yeah, yeah. And it's like um, Joan Cusack. Everybody remembers John, but they forget about Joan. But Joan was huge, and she's been in pretty much everything you can think of. But sure. people just don't know who she is. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, can you imagine if uh, the Toto song was Patricia? Yeah, that would have been a very, very different song. Yeah, because she would have been like nine at the time. Yeah, it would have been very. Um, what was the French guy? Uh, Charlotte Gainsbourg, Serge Gainsbourg. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah Ooh, singing about pedophilia. A little weird, yeah. With his daughter. <laughs> That's a strange song. Ugh. Uh, <laughs> that is a strange thought. We've, we've, we've ended terrifying. up in the weeds again. Uh, so, <laughs> going back to what I was saying about getting to the heart of things. You said you had a rough week this week. Let's, uh, let's uh, hear about the heart of your week. Well, the, the, tough, the tough thing about this week is, I, you know, the, the, the phrase that really sticks with me that I want to write over and over and over again on the blackboard um, as a lesson to both myself as to a les- as well as to a lesson to anybody out there who who is making big life changes or who's who's going through some some rough stuff you never realize how many bridges you've burned until you go back and you try to cross those bridges again and i think that the toughest thing for me this week has been going back 
and looking for gateways to certain friendships or certain people and realizing that I've burned so many bridges, um, or at least, you know, I've damaged some, some, some bridges to the point where fighting my way back onto the bridge and or even attempting to cross it has been such a monumental task that, you know, I've, I, more or less, I've, 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 I've tried to find ways to, 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 to ease the, the, the connection points between me and some of the people who I might have wronged throughout the course of my life or, or, you know, within the last couple of years. And so this week was about kind of cleaning out the closet, um, looking back at a lot of my friendships and relationships and trying to figure out ways to, to find these people again. You know what I mean? And that's, it's, it's for the most part, it's been a thought experiment for me, um, just because I haven't taken a whole lot of action yet. Um, I want to be very careful about how I do that moving forward. Right. Um, but in the process of doing that, I've also discovered that I've changed a lot of course. Since, since before. Like there, the, I now see it, it, you know, for the last four years of my life, I now see it as three completely different periods. Um, the first period was, quote unquote, the breakup. You know, Anna and I, uh, who you know, um, mm-hmm. we'd been together for the better part of um, a decade. Um, mm-hmm. And then I didn't realize how profound of an effect the ending of that relationship would have on me as a person. Right. So as I rolled into the quote unquote recovery phase, um, I I went into it with a bravery and a bravado that was almost entirely false. Right. You know, this was during uh, our era with the wrecking crew where we were just just parting every weekend, just going destroying hard, brain like cells. just destroying brain cells. <laughs> Trillions are dead. Trillions are dead. Like San Jose is a good four IQ points dumber as a collective city because of that six months of our lives. Right. Um, and then th- there's then the post-recovery, which is the moment in which you have some clarity and you realize the, the, the idiotic things that you did or the callousness in which you 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 proceeded through life at that period um, in which you were recovering. And I am now finally getting to the point now where I'm kind of reconstructing that era of my life and figuring out what an idiot I was during that time. You know what I mean? Right. So it's tough. So when and, you say you're going back to, you know, rediscover these friends and and so forth, how long ago have these friendships been, you know, frayed or separate or broken? Well, it depends um, in some senses. With a few of the friends, it's been a, a gradual process of destruction. Um, you know, like with <clears throat> um, the, with some housemates that I had, um, you know, like with, with I, and I know you know John and Kelly. Mm-hmm. Um it took me a while to mess that one up because they had such hope in me as a person. And they were trying to help me at the time. You know right. what I mean? Um, so that took a while to, to break. Um, but there are some that, that, you know, there are some friends that I just completely stopped having any contact with. And it wasn't because they weren't trying to reach out to me. It's because I just simply stopped reaching out to them. Right. So some of these, these breaks are six months old. Some are a year old. Some are 18 months old, you know. Uh, okay. So it's kind of all over the map. Something that I've noticed... Uh, <clears throat> You know, there, I had a considerable amount of time where about the same time, you know, obviously we were doing all that stuff. And then all of a sudden I hit the brakes on all the drinking and realized I wasn't making anything. I wasn't doing anything of value. Not that the people that I was with weren't of value, but what I was doing with myself as a person, I was doing nothing. I wasn't achieving anything. I wasn't striving for anything. And in order to put the brakes on that, I had to literally stop everything stop going out 
And I think I burned a lot of people there too. Um, not out of, excuse me, I just burped on the podcast. Um, <laughs> at the most inopportune time. I think that I burned people just by people burn out on just something as simple as inviting you mm-hmm. and being denied over and over and over again. Sure, sure. And it's not that they hate you, that they dislike you. It's just like, okay, and they break the tie. Mm-hmm. But what I think I've figured out is, yeah, that sucks because you, we remember the affection we have for those people, and that doesn't change who they are or how we feel about them. But I do think that there's a certain importance to, like you said, realizing that we've changed mm-hmm. and reevaluating things and just dealing with things where they are. Yeah. Um, it's imp- always important to analyze the past, but there's such a point where digging into our past is perhaps detrimental to our present. Sure. And I think the two things that, that I can take away from that same lesson is, you know, um, with, with certain friends that I have, um, uh, it's funny. It's, it's, it's easy for us to have this conversation because we have so many mutual friends. So, you know, it's, it's easy for, for, for you and I to, to talk about these things in a familiar, familiar way. Um, what I have to make sure that I, I keep really clear though, is the fact that like, you know, our, our listeners don't know some of these people. Exactly. Um, so for me, you know, there are certain friendships, like there are certain people who just, who, who, who thrive on the closeness of presence. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Um, and as soon as you remove your presence from an environment, it's not that they forget about you. It's not that they care any less about you. It's that you become a very different person to them. Right. You know what I mean? Um, like I, I take my friend Matt, for example. You know Matt. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we, we've done a lot of things together, both both professionally and personally. And, you know, there was a period of time in which I was going through the worst of the worst in the last couple of years where I just literally disappeared from him. You know, mm-hmm. I disappeared from his life and I disappeared from the lives of a couple of people. You know, Brandon's another one that we're both friends with whose life life I disappeared from. Right. Um, and it had it had a, a permanent effect on how we viewed each other and right. it had a permanent effect on how we interacted. And sure, we're trying to rebuild some of that now. Um, but there was a period of time there where it was just really difficult to find any common ground, you know. Mm-hmm. And you're definitely right about the whole... Um, you know, the, the number of times people will invite you and get denied before they just stop inviting you to things. Right. You know what I mean? Like for me, I feel like the I feel like for most people, the number is about five. I think Once you right. get to about <laughs> five, then they're just like, OK, this guy just doesn't want to hang out. Five and know? out. Yeah. Five and out, basically. So mm-hmm. at that point, then you have to you have to reach back out to them. You know what I mean? And right. I think that that's that's really tough um, because. You know, as I've discovered over the last two years, man, it's so much easier to make friendships than it is to fix them. <laughs> totally. And I think that's why a lot of people, um, when they make changes in their lives, they just make new friends. Sure. Because the effort involved is just frightening. Um, damn, I just totally lost my train of thought. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> is that supposed to happen? Um I think, I think that I think it's easier. You know, it's it's not necessarily the best way to do it, but it's easier. You know, absolutely. And I don't think that it's always the best thing to do the easy thing. Sure. I feel like when I look back at, although at the same time, when I look back at certain people that are, you know, there there are people that are your friends that they they have value regardless of any of those things, and. When you look back, though, at your life, though, sometimes you see people that you've spent spent time with at certain periods, and you're like, 
who was this person? Like, why? You know, it's like somebody that's just in your life for like a month. Sure. Or whatever. Those are the people that perhaps like you don't have to worry so much about because, you know, we served a purpose for in each other's lives. It sounds cold, but it's absolutely Yeah, it's true. absolutely true. Yeah, of course. You know, we have we have ships passing in the night, as they say, mm-hmm. moments with people. Um, what I was thinking about that I lost the train of thought on that just came back to me right now is Malcolm Gladwell um, talks, I think it's in the tipping point, he talks about the idea of everybody believes that we build our friendships based on commonality of ideas and mm-hmm. beliefs. You know, when you in studies, they've done studies interviewing people and they always answer that. But when they actually dig in, what they find out is that, that is not true at all. Mm-hmm. What is the most common thing for the most common reason that people are friends with each other is common uh, activities. Sure, sure. So, for example, I play racquetball, you play racquetball. We play racquetball together every week. We're friends. Mm-hmm. If I stop playing racquetball, eventually we're not going to be friends anymore. Sure. Not because you don't like me, not because I don't like you, but because we don't share that anymore. Sure. It happens. Look at all the people. Um, how many work friends have you had that you never see again once you stop working there? Of course. Doesn't mean you don't like those people. Mm-hmm. You just don't share it anymore. So like that, it's almost like we need that physicality. We need that presence mm-hmm. to remind ourselves that we're invested in this relationship because otherwise we just get wrapped up in what else, whatever else is going on in life. Mm-hmm. And I feel like when we deny going to those things, like we said, five times and out, we're subconsciously sending a message that they're interpreting as we don't share this anymore. Sure. And I I know this is kind of a long stretch, but I remember um, talking to my friend's uncle who was in, he was a Marine during the Vietnam War and mm-hmm. I know this is kind of a far stretch, but but I, I, I definitely do believe that there's a certain brotherhood of the trench in all of that. You know what I mean? Of course. In the sense that, you know, he 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 had all of these friends that were in his platoon um, that were great people and they, they, you know, they watched each other's backs and they 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 essentially were protecting each other's lives, um, you know, with with the common goal of, of, of fighting for the U.S. side and fighting for the South Vietnamese. But as much as he loved those people, he barely ever really kept in touch with any of those guys after the fact right you know same I mean? thing with my uncle who was in vietnam he had uh, one guy that he went from boot camp all the way till they came home they were together Jeez, which is pretty rare that is rare. um and i mean they went through hell like how many people died around them literally hell mm-hmm. and i think last time i asked him he hadn't talked to him in like 20 years yeah which blows my mind but you know like I also understand, though, that in these circumstances, there's also a level of maybe they don't want to think about then. Sure, sure, sure. I know specifically for my uncle, he's definitely there's definitely some post-traumatic stress there in the mm-hmm. sense that he doesn't watch movies about Vietnam. Sure. He doesn't read books about Vietnam. Mm. He doesn't want to talk about it. Every once in a while, if I, I can get him to talk about it a little bit, but he's still, I mean, he's, you know, how many years has it been? that he's been home you know since the 70s my whole life yeah three decades o- over my yeah. whole life uh-huh. almost uh, over almost four decades four, yeah four yeah and he true, still true. wakes up every once in a while with nightmares Jeez, and you talk about phases of your life imagine that imagine going through what these guys have gone through and then being able to put that into your past sure. and make a new chapter 
And I think maybe, you know, you said it was a stretch, but I think almost like that's a metaphor for how you're feeling is you need to, you need to look at that and go, if they can make it through that shit, I can make it through this. And that's definitely how it kind of worked out for me too. Like, I mean, it's not that I'm really ashamed of anything that I did within that span of time, you know, like at the, the very worst of it, when I, I was dealing with the breakup in the worst way that I could. Um, I'm not ashamed of, of some of the things that I did or some of the things I do with friends. What I am really ashamed of is, is what my priorities were at the time, you know, like how selfish I became and how, 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 how horribly unaware I was as a person as to what my effect was on other people. Like, you know, for better or for worse, but you were healing yourself at the time. I was healing myself at the time, but I didn't realize that I needed to be more careful about how how I, I was with other people, you know, I think like sometimes though, uh, to be fair to you, I think sometimes that's not possible. You know, physician heal thyself. Mm-hmm. Start with yourself first, you know, like with the oxygen mask on the airplane. You can't take care of the other people on the airplane if you're not getting oxygen. That's true. So that's you true. need to put the mask on yourself first. Mm-hmm. But another thing I want to go in a different direction. Tell me about the text message incident. Oh, God, the text message incident. <laughs> well, I, at my, my work, my, my, my reception is absolute garbage. And so um, I have an iPad that I use to, to you know, do iMessage stuff while I'm at my office um, right. and while we're working. And for some odd reason, iMessage stopped working. And because I have bad reception on my phone, I was literally not receiving text messages from anybody. Um, um, and I, my text messages to people were not getting to them. And I have never in my life felt more cripplingly blind um, and or um, felt like people just didn't care. Because for the first two hours that I didn't have the capability of text messaging, I didn't know that I didn't have right. the ability to text message. Only a call to my girlfriend um, um, clued me into the fact that none of my messages were getting to anybody. So, it's so frightening how tied we are to that one application mm-hmm. i mean in a way it goes back to what we were talking about with the virtual assistants sure the text style you know facebook m mm-hmm. i think that's why it makes sense because we underestimate how much importance we put in that text message oh app. sure yeah 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 you know, 10 15 years ago we didn't even know what the hell a text message was mm-hmm. and now we're so tied to it and it didn't even occur to you to call one of those people right no, not at all. I mean, you know, the, the funny thing, though, is that, you know, in thinking about it after the fact, because I thought it was kind of tragic that I was that tied into my text messages, but it's because it had turned into a medium of communication for me uh, in the same way that letters would have been for, you know, people 50 years ago or telephones would have been for someone 20 years ago. Right. So I, be- I I came to rely on it as a way to keep in touch with the people that I cared about. Right. Um, and in some cases, like with the business uh, context that I was trying to keep keep in touch with, it became even more difficult because there was information that I needed in order to do certain parts of my job. Right. So it just became a nightmare, a, 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 a silent nightmare um, in which I, I felt like I was, I was in a room that no one could reach. Um, and it was just really, really tough. Like I, I literally had to call 15 different people eventually. Um, I, well, no, not 15. I eventually, I was texting about 15 different people. I eventually ended up calling about four or five of them. Right. Um, and saying, hey, like this, you know, I, I need this information. Have you been getting my text messages? All that kind of stuff. It was just an absolute nightmare. Carlos and, it and w- I used to go to this bar down the street and there was yeah. a specific spot we would sit in. And for some reason, our text messages would never 
be answered when they're there. It probably wasn't a connection issue, sure. but it just seemed like every time we sat there and there was an umbrella over us. Mm-hmm. So we used to say that the umbrella was stealing our text messages. It's like the cone of silence. Yeah. 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 It's like, no, nothing is getting out of here. Yeah. No, I, I, I hear you. I mean, but the, the one thing that, that made, that it made me do was to just stop texting. I mean, it's, it's funny because, you know, I, even at work, I constantly have my phone with me. You know, everywhere I go, everything I do, I, I literally always have my phone in my pocket. But because I wasn't able to send text messages, I put my phone in a drawer for three hours. And right. it was weirdly liberating after I got over the initial panic. It almost know? feels like any time that you take something that we use all the time and put it away, no matter what it is, even not not just technology, but just anything, mm-hmm. it feels liberating. Because I think at a certain point, we become uh, possessed by, you know, the fa- uh, Facebook, the Fight Club line. Mm-hmm. You know what you own ends up owning you. Mm-hmm. It really does happen. Yeah, we we become slaves to our own devices. And you know what's funny is uh, the, the a podcast that we both listened to um, quite a bit back to work. Those guys, mm-hmm. um, they were talking about that a little bit. Um, you know, uh, David Allen wrote this book called Get Things Done, and you know the guys were talking about it on the podcast. Right. And one thing that they were talking about was how um, you can comp- the smartest way to go about getting things done is to compartmentalize mental energy in the moment in which you need to do something versus thinking about it all the time. You exactly. know what I mean? And I think that for, for us, like especially, I, I know that I had this experience with the text message thing. I was panicked about tasks that I didn't even need to get done right away because I didn't have an answer as to how I was going to get them done in the moment. Right. But after the fact, it was like, who cares? I don't need to think about this for three hours. So why am I thinking about it now? You know what I mean? So what it helped me to do was it helped me to kind of prioritize a lot better because I couldn't do anything about a specific thing. Couldn't do anything mm-hmm. about it. Couldn't contact anybody. Couldn't do the task itself. Didn't have the information. I it needed. goes from now to I had soon. to shelve it. Yeah, I had to shelve it. Not even now to soon, but now to exactly two hours from now. Right. It's like, like it the snooze feature in email. Yeah, exactly. Which yeah. is golden. Oh, God. Because <laughs> looking so at those, you know, 50 messages in there, but, you know, like if 20 of them are for Amazon packages, because you usually get like four emails from Amazon, be like, we got your order. Mm-hmm. We got your payment. Yeah. We shipped it. Yeah. It's on its way. Uh-huh. Like snooze them all to that day. Get them get them out of the way. Yeah. yeah, it, yeah. I mean, you open that inbox and like I always strive for zero. Mm-hmm. I usually end up at like three, which sure. is still good. It's not bad. But I definitely think that like the, there's we need to learn to do that with other things in our life as well. Sure. Uh another thing going along the lines of back to work that I have written down is something to mention to you. In an older episode, I'm pretty sure it was them. They talk about this idea of trying on emotions. Mm-hmm. So, oh. f- for example, you know, like trying them on like a shirt or a jacket. Um, I don't know where they got it from because obviously I'm not positive it was them. Uh, but, for example, you are in you were in traffic on the way here. Ugh. Now, that's frustrating. But they say, you know, try this on. What would it be like right now if I didn't feel frustrated? Huh. <laughs> and something about trying those on breaks the spell of the emotion when you're in it. Sure, sure. Which I, I think it really, it's just a, a dastardly way of, of achieving mindfulness. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of a roundabout way, but I guess I, I understand where they're trying to go with it. That makes sense. I've been, I've been, that's kind of been my mantra for the week is that every time like I'm, I'm like, what would it feel like if I, and there was more to their thing, but just that one thing, what would it feel like if I didn't feel this right now? You know, I think it's the writer brain in me, but I think I go the other way with it in that as as I try to start 
constructing analogies or metaphors or similes that make sense within the moment. And I here's what I came to with the whole traffic thing. Driving in in traffic, especially with people in the Bay Area slash San Jose, because we don't see rain very often, then that's what caused the traffic today, is like playing Monopoly with people. They reveal who they really are. You right. know what I mean? If you're an overly cautious person, you become way overly cautious. If you're a reckless, crazy bastard, you become a way reckless, crazy bastard. If you um, um, are a selfish, mean person by nature, you're going to cut people off. You're like There's just all of these things that get accentuated. So it's like playing Monopoly with a million strangers. You right. know what I mean? So, yeah, it was, it was interesting. That's why I hate playing Monopoly. <laughs> I've never played Monopoly with you. I, I'm curious. I don't think anybody... Really there's, I, number one, I don't play a lot of board games. I'm not a competitive person. Mm-hmm. Uh, I played Risk once in my life, and I won. Yeah. So I retired. Yeah, done. Yeah. Hundred percent. That's as good as it's gonna get, dude. (laughs) (laughs) And Monopoly, I think I play. I used to play with uh, with my dad when I was younger, but Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's a pretty savage game. I'm not a. I'm not super competitive. Like my favorite thing to do is to play Trivial Pursuit without the board. Yeah, yeah. Like let's just read the questions and find out what if we know the answers. Yeah, yeah. And maybe that's the nerd in me. Like mm-hmm. I just like learn. Like my favorite is when I don't know the answer. Sure, and I just flip like it over. But like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now I know what the cop- capital of uh, Hungary is. Yeah, actually, I already knew that. <laughs> <laughs> Useless information. Ah, it'll be useful at some point. I mean, you know, it's it's funny because I I always worry about that as a person, like whether I have all of this useless information that will never have any practical purpose anywhere. But you know my my girlfriend who who is a lover of information and 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 learning says that no information you have is inherently useless right. um, even if the only purpose for that information was to expand your brain that 0.2% right. that it needed in order to store something else later sure you might get rid of you know what the speed of light is but you may at some well, point you don't lose it. it's yeah, in back storage it's, it's it's somewhere in your back storage and you never know when it comes in handy right. you know what i mean it's a Knowledge is the one place where it's acceptable to be a hoarder. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Because nobody has ever, ever said, we found out once you get to this point, you can't store anymore. Yeah. Like, I don't think anybody in the history of the world has filled their brain. Yeah. And when you have had people like Einstein and Mm -hmm. Stephen Hawking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When you have uh, the guy that, what was that guy's name? Ken Jennings that, that was just a master at Jeopardy. Dude, if Neil they can't fill their brains, yeah. <laughs> we're definitely not going to. Yeah, 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 sure. Although I fear sometimes people are filling it with reality TV, but I don't think that goes into storage. But, you know, it's 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 funny because uh, Ricky Gervais in a podcast, like, I mean, he, he usually jokes around in his podcast, but every once in a while he says something pretty profound. And I think that... Um, I think that with reality TV, wow, we took a weird leap here. Sorry, I'm not going to talk about anything that related to what we just talked about. It was That's completely okay. divergent from that. I'm sure um, that all the listeners are done with it anyway. Oh, yeah, sure, <laughs> sure. In that if, you, if you're only given Velveeta cheese your whole life, that's what you consider is good. Right. You know what I mean? If you've never read Kafka or if you've never listened to Bjork, like you just won't know. Like if the only thing right. you've ever heard in your entire life is is – Katy Perry, and don't get me wrong, I'm not, I'm not slagging off Katy Perry. She's, no, she's great for what she is. Things that are popular but... are not innately bad. Sure, sure, yeah. But, but the point is that ultimately, it's about, it's about giving people the, the a better option. And, and 
don't get me wrong for a guy like me or for a guy like you, especially as writers, like we in literature, at least we looked for better options on our own because we wanted to expand our own understanding of our art form. Right. So there was a certain, there was a certain motivation to find better. But we also I mean? both enjoyed Harry Potter. That's true. Absolutely. Oh, not I that that's Harry not Potter. written well, but sure. it's popular. It's, you know, and I think that that's one of the things I don't know what age I figured this out, but I remember at one point looking at all of the intelligent people mm-hmm. and going, you know, like, oh, this guy's antisocial, this guy's... And in my mind, I remember thinking, why don't they apply the same intelligence that they have mm-hmm. to social interaction? Sure. If you can problem solve how to get to Mars, <laughs> why can't you figure out how to talk to your coworker? Why can't you pick up, do the same thing you did with science? Sure. Find the books, mm-hmm. digest the information. Mm-hmm. And to me, I always made an important part, as much as I would love to get into nerdy stuff, I always made sure that I was aware at least to some degree of something that was popular that I could enjoy. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's, that's why it's important to give children at a young age, you know, introduce them to classical music and jazz and all these things, because you don't have to introduce them to what's popular, Mm -hmm. but you introduce them to these other things, not necessarily as a better option, but as an enrichment. Mm -hmm. It's okay to, to love Katy Perry. It's also really good to be into Beethoven. Sure. Those are both good things. You mm-hmm. need both. Sure. Um, if you're, if you're only listening to, and I have to remind myself of this considerably when it comes to music because I ignore the radio. Mm-hmm. And I, I, like I said last week, I don't know that I, I know things. Sure. Because I don't experience them, but I do know what's going on with television in general. You know, mm-hmm. I might not know all the reality TV shows. But I watch NCIS. Yeah. I like that. Mm-hmm. I did cop shows. You know, and I think that in a way, here's a, here, I'll pose a question to you. Do you think that there is a need for teaching children how to integrate the two? Oh, of course. And, and, you know, it, it's funny because my, my parents are immigrants. Um, you know, they came over to this country when they were teenagers. So they had a tough time. Um, interacting with the general public um, when they first initially got here, but they were young enough that they could adapt. Right. And so the the the, the beneficial thing that I I got um, out of that was that I got to watch them go through this journey at an age in which I didn't I didn't know any better. You know what I mean? So I thought that communication was a fundamental part of how we got along with other people. Um, you know, not just, and I know that sounds, that sounds, in, you know, like a, a no-brainer um, in our current context, but a lot of people still don't really have that as a priority in their lives. Right. You know what I mean? So I learned from a very early age that I needed to communicate with multiple worlds because my parents, when they first got here, only spoke Vietnamese. You know, they right. were trying to learn English and then I was learning English in school. So I literally had to translate for them for the English people. But by that same token, I also had to communicate with them as a, a, a Vietnamese kid in a Vietnamese family. Right. Um, so there was the, it's it's paramount, and you and I think I think that 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 allows you to broaden your perspective as you get older too, and accept things for what they are, um, whether they're popular or not. Like for example, um, if you didn't like popular stuff, you wouldn't like a guy like David Fincher because David Fincher makes popular movies right. but he makes damn good movies yeah it's, it's you know it's, it's it, he rides that line sure you know it's like wow or tarantino <clears throat> sure i sold a lot of tickets 
And I made something quality. Yeah. You know, somebody could argue either way. Well, you can't argue the ticket numbers. Mm-hmm. But I, I think that sometimes it blows my mind, like, the things that seem so straightforward, the things that should be taught mm-hmm. are not taught. Sure. Things like that. Um, another thing, why are we not taught in school how finance works? <laughs> like, here's what a bank account does. Here's how you could do a savings. Mm-hmm. This is what a life cycle fund is. Mm-hmm. All of the things that we actually need as mm-hmm. adults, why aren't we taught those things? Yeah. How often are we going to use physics? I mean, don't get me wrong. I still think physics is a great endeavor. Right. Yeah. And a fantastic pursuit. So. If you happen to be that, that kid that wants to take it, then great. But don't force me into a class that, that will ultimate. Yeah. And I don't, I don't necessarily think that any of those classes are inherently bad. No. I think the well, point, any class the point, in general can be a good thing. I, I think that that school, or at least the, the 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 educational apparatus as we understand it, is really limited in how. And I think it's because it just hasn't evolved with life. You well, know it's what not I mean? focused on. It's focused on the wrong thing. It's focused on career. Sure. It is not. It's focused on career and test scores. For the school. so the, And I understand why the schools need money. If their test scores are good, mm-hmm. then they get more money. That's sad mm-hmm. that, that we're giving people a weaker education just because we're trying to maintain the level because otherwise they won't be able to give them any sort of education sure. without the money. But the tr- at its truth, education is about learning. Mm-hmm. It is about providing things that enrich the person. And, you know, like, for example... The truest form of learning really is one-on-one with a tutor. Sure. A classroom is never going to be able to do that. Yeah. We can't do that. It's just not logistical. <laughs> half the world is yeah. not teachers. Sure, sure, sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I just, I think the curriculum has gotten strange. Like I, I think about when I was in school, you know, it, it, and I'm sure it's worse now. It's not exactly the same. Okay, you got to go to this. Why you got to do this? Oh, because you got to get into the high school. You got to get into the good high school. Okay, I got to the good high school. Okay, you have to, you have to get these. You know, you got to at least have a C or above average on everything, and you got to make sure your test scores are good so you can get into a good college. You get into a college, going back to Fight Club again. You know, it's mm-hmm. like this never-ending stream. It's a cycle, sure. And it's yeah. like, what happens when you get to the end? Like exactly in Fight Club. Now what? Yeah. What do I do now? You know what's really funny about you saying that is, um, you know, Crystal and I, my, my girlfriend for anyone who doesn't know yet, um, Crystal and I have had this conversation so many times over the last year because she bought into the system. Right. And she bought into it like any good Asian child would. Um, not to be racist about it, but I mean, that's just the expectation in an Asian family. Right. So she got great test scores. She got, she did very well in school. She fought her way through to a great college, went to Berkeley, graduated from Berkeley, and then got a job that she kind of liked. And you know, only in her later age, she's, you know, now in her early 30s, she she just woke up one morning and, and realized that she just didn't remember anything. Right. She didn't remember anything. Like, I mean, she took a bunch of classes, some classes which she really liked, but it wasn't about remembering or using that information. It was about remembering just enough of it to get a good grade on a test and then forgetting about it. Right. You know, so these days, like in our conversations, like I did horribly in school, which is hilarious considering, you know... Um, I consider myself to be a reasonably smart person, but I just never bought into the system. And so because of that, for better or for worse, I just didn't learn that way. When I found something interesting in my history class, for example, I would go and just learn about that thing on my own. 
right. you know, whether it was, it was useful in the class or not. And so, you know, there were times where I would just would not show up to my classes for weeks at a time. And this really frustrated a lot of my teachers, you know, because it wasn't that I was some kind of weird burnout who was getting stoned in the parking lot. Right. I would just go other places and do other things. Like I'd go see a film festival in Stanford and watch three Fellini movies in a row. Right. You know what I mean? So it was really frustrating. I, for did, my I did an identical thing. <laughs> and I had a horrible habit of reading the books I was supposed to read for a class mm -hmm. the semester after I was out of that class. You know, ah, like, I love it. <laughs> oh, philosophy is over this, you know, uh, three months after philosophy is over, I decide now's a good time to read Plato's Republic. Yeah. You know, and I think that going back to what you were saying about that, um, getting to the end of that line and going, where are we? Mm -hmm. I think that's our midlife crisis. Sure. The midlife crisis is going, you told me <laughs> to go this way. And there isn't anything here. That's exactly. I'm just yeah. as lonely and screwed up as everybody else. You know, this can go for, you know, schooling. This can go from what they taught us about emotions and mm -hmm. about relationships. You know, people end up in marriages and then they go, this isn't what I thought it was going to be. Sure. And it's always a crisis of identity. Sure, sure. Because we're not told how to learn to be who we are. Mm -hmm. uh, I've been reading this book super better. Mm -hmm. by Jay McGonigal, and it's about um, using gaming, uh, the mindset of gaming to achieve things in life. And one of the things that she says is um, all of all deathbed regrets mm -hmm. when people die are universal. Yeah. And that's, I mean, it blew my mind that when people die, they almost all wish for one of five things. And I'm discreetly flipping through my notebook right now because now that I brought it up, I guess I should tell the five yeah, things. Yeah, it'd probably be important. <laughs> Number one, I wish I hadn't worked so hard. Mm. Number two, I wish I had stayed in touch with my friends. Mm. It goes back to our conversation Jeez. earlier. <laughs> Number three, I wish I had let myself be happier. Ugh. Number four, I wish I had to, the courage to express my true self. Mm. And number five, I wish I had lived a life truer to my dreams instead of what others expected. Ouch. Oh, those hurt. You know, every one of those hurts because we can see ourselves saying one of those on our own deathbed. You know, what's funny is that I feel like I'm going through each one of those things. I'm, I'm saying each one of those things specifically at like right now for example i'm in the i wish i'd kept in better touch with my friends right i miss my friends so much um considering where i i, I was with you know putting my life back together from the at the end of the relationship and all of the, the the people i lost touch with i miss my friends so much right and it came to a head like the weird the weird things that happened in my i mean the i have one tangible representation of that which is I miss my dog, you know, because after having lived with my dog, uh, or I kept the dog after the end of the relationship for about a year, um, and I just wasn't around for him enough, and I, I, you know, I wasn't taking great care of him, so I gave him to um, my my ex, uh, Anna, and she's been taking care of him for a while, and, you know, in the last week, I made contact with her to try to, to see him again, and she wasn't sure if that was a, a good idea, Right, and intellectually like yeah intellectually i completely understand why 
I completely understand why it's a bad idea because he's moved on, you know, because he now lives in a, in a different place with different people and different animals and stuff like that. So he's moved on emotionally. Right. But there's a Isn't part weird of me, to think that about an animal, right? Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, it's, it's, it's more weird and less weird in the sense that at least animals for, for, you know, for my dog, for example, he has an emotional depth that isn't that, 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 that far reaching. It isn't as complex. So for right. him, you know, he doesn't have the baggage of nine years worth of relationship to go along with the, I just miss my, my owner or whatever it is. You know right. what I mean? I think when about he's, that with my cat. Mm-hmm. I didn't. I haven't had this cat since I was a kitten. Or should, I was a kitten. <laughs> Where yeah. is your cat? Once when I was a kitten, hiding from you. Oh, um, of course. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, when since she was a kitten, I think she was a year and a half, mm-hmm. maybe even two years when I got her. Yeah. And now I don't think she thinks about where she was before. I mean, I sure. know she doesn't. They don't have that kind of introspection. But I don't think that um, she views this place as. Oh, I guess I'm stuck here. Sure. This is just home. Like yeah. you said, she just moved on. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's a lesson for all of us. Yeah. And, and, and <laughs> we I should be more like our pets. And you know, that's, that's funny because I, I, I God, it's, it's hilarious that you said that's exactly, that's exactly where I was going with all of this, which is, <laughs> you know, maybe we should just, just say, screw it. This is just where we are now. You know, like I, I look at, I look at Crystal and how much she struggles with her past. Like she's so mad. She's so mad that she didn't get the right lessons. You know right. what I mean? She's so mad that all through the best schools that she could go to, she went through a private high, uh, high school with exceptional teachers and super high test scores. She went to Berkeley after right. that. So she went to all of these exception, quote unquote, exceptional educational institutions and learned nothing from them that is useful to her now. <laughs> You know, and there's not a day that goes by where she, 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 at least these days where she's just like, I wish I had just learned a completely different set of tools. That armed me better for living a happier, more constructive, and more altruistic life. <laughs> you know but you I mean? are where you are. Yeah, you are where you are. So I mean, you maybe know. maybe it needed that. Maybe she needed that kick in order to realize that she needed to be that person. I you think know? that and that's one of the most important lessons I've learned in life. The things that we regret teach us more than anything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because uh, I was talking about this with somebody the other day. There's a quote from C.S. Lewis that I misquote all the time but i get the core of the meaning right Mm -hmm. and the misquote my paraphrasing of the is pain is the flag of truth to a rebel soul without pain that sounds right sorry it's close (laughs) (laughs) it's something about planting it in the fortress or whatever i don't know there's the the uh, metaphor goes a lot bigger than i said it but the essence of it is something that has stuck with me for I don't know how long. I think I've known that quote for over 20 years. Sure. And I think of it often because every time we experience pain, every time we experience something uncomfortable, we have trouble reconnecting with friends, it grounds us in a way that nothing else can. It makes us realize who we are Mm -hmm. and not who we were, not Mm -hmm. who we're going to be, who we are now. And that's... that's very much in the Buddhist ideal of suffering comes from paying too much attention to what was and what will be. Sure. We have to be present. We have to be now. Mm-hmm. We have to be who we are now and accept everything. Sure. Otherwise, we're miserable. Sure. And it's a, it's a strange strange thing to realize at this point of life, but I feel like at this age of life, in, in the late 30s, early 40s, that's when you're kind of supposed to learn this stuff. Sure. Because all of the 
bravado and all the fuel and all the momentum of youth has worn off. All the cocksureness, mm -hmm. all that's worn off. Yeah. And what you're left with is who you are. Mm -hmm. And you have to deal with who you are because soon you're going to be in the stage where you're falling apart. Sure. And if you don't know who you are by you reach that point, then you got nothing but pain planting its flag of truth in places you don't want it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Both emotionally and physically. Yeah. Yeah, at exactly. the same time. Yeah. Um, let's change gears here for a second. <laughs> you don't want to talk about sad stuff anymore? Or no, I just I, different I, sad stuff. <laughs> I, I just want to vary things up. I got a lot of stuff on this yeah, list here. Yeah, I hear you. Speaking of back to work, did you hear the one where they were talking about Hound? Yeah. Oh, the, I was listening it? to that on the way here. Um, no, I haven't tried it yet. I tried it. It's mind-blowing. For those of you who don't know, mm -hmm. going back to last week's conversation, we were talking about virtual assistants, and mm -hmm. I think you and I both agreed that Alexa seemed the most intelligent. So far, yeah. I think Hound is smarter. Oh, no. Huh. Hound is made by um, SoundHound, yeah. which is the uh, Shazam competitor for naming music. Shound, uh, I just mixed them together. Uh, SoundHound was always, I always thought SoundHound was cooler until they, I shouldn't say until. Uh, I always thought they were cooler um, because you could hum a song into it mm -hmm. and it would recognize the song for you. Shazam. You actually had to play the real song. That's pretty amazing. But I stopped using it because Shazam got built into the phone. I'm like, hey, I can liberate myself of another app. Sure. Um, but this thing is incredible. You can, not only is the conversation back and forth with it, um, you know, you say, what is the capital of Italy? And she'll say, the capital of Italy is Rome. I think it's a she. Actually, it sounded like Siri. It sounded mm -hmm. like the same voice. Uh, the capital of... Italy is Rome. And what's the population? And then it tells you the population. And what's the temperature there right now? And you can just, it knows that you're still talking about the same thing and you can go with that. Huh, weird. But the real crazy thing about it is when you stack questions. Mm -hmm. So you can say to it in one breath, say, what is the capital of Rome? What is the capital of China? What is the capital of the Soviet Union, or the former Soviet Union? Mm -hmm. And what year did the Soviet Union collapse? What was the population then? What is the population now? How does that population compare to China and Rome? And what is the temperature in Rome right now? Jeez. All in one question, and it will answer all of those. Huh. It's incredible. That's amazing. I don't know how they do it, but I really think that uh, right now, I know Apple has a lot going on. Apple should be looking at this company and going, we should buy them. Have you seen... Um did you ever hear? Do you listen to the Crack Podcast at all? No, I didn't even know they had one. Uh, they had. I used a, to read their magazines. Yeah, they, they the had. They had a um, a podcast in which um, they interviewed the woman that was responsible for the voice of Siri. Oh, Susan Bennett. Yeah, she follows me on Twitter. And she, what? How do you have all these crazy Twitter followers? I, don't I know. still don't. You and your twenty eight thousand tweets That's or whatever it is. Some I just have number. great SEO. Yeah, <laughs> but um, She's she really she, cool. was, she was talking about how she had to enunciate the same words like 70 times because in different phrases of conversation you would say a certain word like it or the or or was a different way right and she had to say all of those different ways it's like the ultimate of being a voice actor oh geez yeah it's insane it's like being the game tester of voice acting yeah you know people don't realize like game testing they think is just playing a game mm -hmm. but literally it's like walk into this room turn left sure restart yeah walk into this room turn right restart mm -hmm. and you have to test every permutation and that's exactly what she had to do with her voice yeah yeah 
I, I, when I saw that she followed me on Twitter, I had to resist my strong temptation to text her and say, Susan, I'm so sorry. I didn't know you, you were a real person and I've called you a worthless bitch about 50 times. <laughs> you should have done Because it. Siri pisses me off so much. I just oh, screamed no. into my microphone. Nice. Oh, <laughs> uh, you should have done it. I'm sure she would have responded well. She sounded like she had a great sense of humor about I, it on the she's podcast. She's been actually making the rounds. I don't know why it took her this long to like start getting interviews. Mm-hmm. Um, it's fascinating to me. It's probably because like, she was freaking busy saying the same word 50,000 times. How many times. people know this woman's voice? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, it's like, um, like this, like Star Trek, like, mm-hmm. let's get a little nerdy here. For those that don't know, the computer mm-hmm. on Star Trek, the original series, and the computer, voice of the computer, uh, in the second one, actually, there wasn't a voice of the computer in the first one. Yeah. Um, in Next Generation was Gene Roddenberry's wife. Yep. Who also played Deanna Troy's mom. Deanna Troy's mom mm-hmm. and the nurse in the original series. That is correct. So, if you watch the show, there's weird moments where she's talking to the ship's computer, mm-hmm. you know, asking for something from the replicator. It's her talking to herself. Yeah. And I, I feel like that Siri is like even more so that, you know, it's like, like we hear, can you imagine running in Susan Bennett in real life? And she's saying something like, I'm sorry. You know, something, you imagine? something we've heard Siri say a million times. Oh, geez. I'm sorry. So weird. <laughs> can you imagine Susan Bennett talking to Siri? And asking Siri. She's probably an Android user. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> just, just out of sheer frustration. Yeah, which, like, which I can't deal with my own voice. Since I haven't talked about my corrections from last week, I will throw that in as a correction, uh, which is Android phones are not as popular as iPhones. Android still holds a market share over, um, iPhones. Let me be more specific about that. The iPhone is the single most popular phone compared to any other phone, not right. iOS versus Android. Um, the other side of that, which qualifies my correction, is every single version of Android that anybody will pick up these days is a specific permutation to that company or that device, which then also counts into my point of all of that stuff is messed up because it's specific to the phone right. and not universal like the iOS is. Every iOS has the same version of the OS. doesn't right. matter. So, Unless yeah. you're one of those weird people that doesn't update it. Yeah, and or someone who jailbreaks their phone, which I never think is a great idea. <laughs> I've done it a few times. And I will say it's not a safe idea, but, dude, there's some awesome stuff you can oh, do. Oh, sure, yeah. I mean, you take full advantage of the, 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 the capabilities of the device, but you also completely remove yourself from the support equation. Right. If anything goes wrong with your phone, you are on your own, buddy. <laughs> oh, man. I, I've, I would say that I stopped using the jailbreaking just because the... um updating was a pain you know like a new os would come out you have to wait like four months until they crack the new one sure. sometimes they do it the same day which was nuts mm-hmm. um that's insane to me I but having that. those things i also feel like i stopped doing it because it made me sad mm-hmm. <laughs> because <laughs> sometimes you'd have these things and you're like why doesn't apple just do this you know like the way that the i had this one i, I wish i could remember it's been so long i had this one folder system that was just so killer and it just made the way the folders work on the iPhone look stupid. Yeah. And it was, you know, like you'd have oh, an icon. You, you showed me this. You'd yeah. have the icon and yeah. you'd push it. Uh-huh. And I think I think it was just a tap. You'd tap on it instead of, um, I can't remember. It doesn't really matter. When you would hit the button on the thing, instead of it looking like a folder, it would be an app. Yeah. You push it out and then apps would radiate out from it. Yeah. So one would move to the right, one would move to the left, one would move up, one would move down. 
So you'd have this cross-shaped pattern of five apps. Yeah. So you could put your core app, you know, like my core communication app is text message. And you could bury, you know, like Facebook Messenger, uh, Google Hangout, mm-hmm. um, WhatsApp, and give me one more. Skype. Skype. And you can hide those. You're like, those are all kind of the same app. But if I see that text message icon, I know those are buried there. Yeah. But I use this one the most. And you can hide those until you needed them. And and that just seemed so brilliant to me. Mm-hmm. And because let's be honest, if you fill your screen with folders, mm. it looks awful. I've done it. Yep, I know. I, I've seen people put them in their dock and I'm like, wow, you have a lot of things that you feel like you need all the time. Mm-hmm. I've reduced my iPhone down to one screen. Yeah. Oh, nice. I don't know how many. I can't look at my phone right now because I'm recording on it. Um, God, at my height, dude, I was up to seven screens. I can't deal with the screen flipping anymore. I'm like, yeah, it's too much. It's too much. I just, I literally, once a month, I go through my apps and I go, have I used you? No. Peace out. Yeah. And my theory behind that is it's not that I'm never going to need that app, but if I don't need that app, but once every four months, Mm I'll download it when I need it, use sure. it, and then delete it off the phone. Oh, it's like you were what you were talking about last week with the people's everyday carry stuff. Right, you know? exactly. I was like thinking if, that in my head too. If you use if you use your laptop once every three weeks, then why do you carry it with you everywhere? Just right. carry an iPad or a notepad. You know what I mean? You should see, have you seen this new Android phone that came out called the Next Bit Robin? No. First of all, one of the worst names ever, but yeah. It's a beautiful phone, though. It's this beautiful, like, teal, which sounds awful, but when you see it, it, it's a beautiful-looking phone. Mm. Um, But if I remember correctly, what it does is when you reach a certain storage limit, Mm -hmm. it uninstalls the apps from your phone, but it it doesn't remove them from your phone. It leaves a grayed-out placeholder. Huh. So, um, for example, say Skype. Say you don't use Skype very often and you reach that storage limit. Well, it's going to look and it's going to go, okay, this is something he hasn't used in the longest period on his phone. Yeah. It uninstalls it from your phone, but it leaves the Skype icon on your phone, but it's grayed out. And when you tap on that icon to use it, mm-hmm. it redownloads the app and puts you, and it's, it's saved the state that you were in. You wow. Don't have to cool. sign, you don't have to sign back into the app, mm-hmm. which Apple still hasn't figured out yet, apparently. Sure. Um, like right now, speaking of which, I am I can't I can't use my uh, keychain at all. What do you mean? Completely broken? What you uh, just can't for use some it? reason my phone booted me out of the iCloud keychain, which is fine because you know you can go you know authorize me from another device. Yeah. Well, I just wiped that desktop last week so that I could get a clean install. Uh huh. Well, iCloud keychain is not active on there, so now there's no device to authenticate. And then it asked me for my security code. I give it my security code, and it doesn't tell me it's the wrong security code. It just says, cannot authorize at this time. It's been doing that for like a week. That's cryptic, but so okay. I'm, I'm like, well, it's a good thing that I put everything into LastPass. Sure, sure, sure. So I don't, I, I love the iCloud keychain. I think it's brilliant. Mm-hmm. But I also worry about situations like this because we know now, like, they're not going to break in for the FBI. They're not going to break into it for me, for my. Code. Sure, the only sure, option I have is to reset it all. Oh, that would be a nightmare. I'm gonna have to do it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the other thing about this this type of technology too is that the more the more useful it becomes, the more invasive it becomes. The more invasive it becomes, the more 
catastrophic it is when you lose it. <laughs> well, yeah, going back to what you we were talking about earlier, th that dependence. Yeah, you have sure. a certain level of dependence. Mm -hmm. And I feel like, as awful as it sounds, redundancies are required. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't want a piece of paper laying around with all my passwords. It's probably one of the safest things I can do. Mm -hmm. But I don't want that. Sure. It doesn't make me feel good. Yeah. Um, so instead I have two keychain apps. <laughs> Jeez, my mom uses a, I forget the name of it. I, I thought it was a dumb One password? No, it's no, it's called Safeguard or something like that. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and it was, the interface just really sucks, but it's really secure and it backs it up to like two different clouds right. and you can have a Dropbox backup too That's as like, well. That's um, like Dashlane or whatever. They do the yeah, same yeah, thing. Yeah, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I don't know. I Part of me still can't get to the point where I'm comfortable enough with using those things. And maybe it's my, my experience with, with Bluetooth and cell phone security, um, like in one of my previous jobs, like I just know how easy it is to crack that stuff. Oh yeah. And so because of that, like I, I'm just inherently paranoid about adding any level of information on my phone that's of any use to anyone other than me. You know what that's I mean? Like what Edward Snowden said recently about, you know, if, if Apple does this crack for the FBI, Mm -hmm. it will make anybody able to hack into an iPhone within 30 minutes. Sure. Less than that. Yeah. That's, that's the, that's the, that's the level of vulnerability that this backdoor would create. Mm -hmm. And I, I have to say, you know, like we complained last week about, or at least I complained last week about Apple's questionable design in the last year. Mm hmm. And for a while, I was frustrated with Tim Cook. I felt like uh, I know some of it's coming from Johnny Hive, too. But mm -hmm. right now, I'm loving Tim Cook. Mm -hmm. People are not realizing the importance of this security issue. I mean, the amount of life and the amount of valuable information that we are putting in very vulnerable places. We're putting this in public places. Mm -hmm. You know, when you put something on the Internet, that is not something that's locked up in a safe in your house. Mm -hmm. Our social security numbers are there. Our credit card numbers, our passwords, all of that is there. Sure. It is of paramount importance that security be maintained mm -hmm. and not at the sacrifice of anything else. That comes secondary. It's awful what happened, but that comes secondary to the security of every American. And I think that I'm getting political here for a moment, but that's fine. I feel like this isn't, we're a podcast. This is technology. I feel like this is, an important discussion to have. I feel like there's there's people out there still arguing about gun control. Mm -hmm. Gun control doesn't mean anything anymore. It's completely irrelevant to the public state of our country. Mm -hmm. Not because people shouldn't have the right to have guns, but because the argument to have guns is that you need to be able to defend yourself should the government become oppressive. Sure. I hate to tell you, we've passed the point in technology and armament and all of that to where even if every American citizen had a gun, the government would still destroy us. Yeah. It's not even close. They have drones, mm -hmm. they have satellites, mm -hmm. and they have Navy SEALs. Yeah. And none of us <laughs> are going to be able to do anything against yeah. an armed, re in an armed resistance. That's ridiculous. Sure. That argument is completely, it's just perpetuated by people like the NRA that are worried about whatever they're worried about but that argument it doesn't exist you can make other arguments that's fine you know if you that want argument your guns is, to hunt yeah that's mm -hmm. a that's a valid argument sure uh maybe not with an m16 yeah. but the fact that it's to protect ourselves from the government that argument is 
completely dumb. Yeah. Because it, you can't do that. The argument that we should be worried about right now is the exact one that Apple's making. Our gun control argument is our security argument. Mm-hmm. What people do with our information, how they secure our information, how our information is safe from our own government who can be oppressive at one point. Mm -hmm. It's possible. Sure. That is our gun argument now. We need to protect the security of our information. Sure. Without a doubt. Because if we don't, then all those fears that people had about the government take, you know, becoming a dictatorship. Mm Mm-hmm. You can do that with information now. You sure. Don't, you don't need guns to, to control the populace. You need pressure points. Mm-hmm. Hey, I know what porn sites you went to. Sure. All that kind of crazy shit that, you know, people were afraid that, you know, you, you can, they can even perpetuate lies from information that they have. Mm-hmm. Um, all of that is far more pressure than a machine gun. You know, what's funny is I, I, I know this is kind of a, 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 a weird metaphor for it, but I, I go back to part of our previous conversation, which is, you know, one of the movies that I always think about when it comes to this kind of stuff is um, a Fincher movie called The Game, which right. I actually think is one of the most brilliant movies he's ever made. I love it. But I think of the first half hour of that movie um, where the company that is creating the game is literally delving through Michael Douglas's life and pulling all of these pressure points, pulling all of these physical and emotional pressure points, both from his past and his present, that have made his his future a certain predictable path that was going to make him his father. The crazy thing is how much they were able to do with that information. Right. You know, and then I think about what you're saying now, and I think about, okay, if the FBI really wanted to mess with my life, if they just hacked my phone, they could steer my course of action for the next 10 years of my life without me knowing it. You know what I mean? Exactly. So, yeah, I mean, in an age of information, the guy who holds the keys to the information is king. So, you know, if we give the the FBI the keys to the kingdom, that essentially gives the FBI an open window into everything that we are as people because we live on these devices. Right. You know, there's nothing that we don't do. Like for for me or for you in that sense, like almost everything I do involves my phone in some way. I I need the devices to work. We're recording this podcast on our phones. Right. You know. And, you know, the thing that, that kind of maybe makes me chuckle a little bit is the same people that are willing to sacrifice their security in this case, you know, that they support the FBI over Apple in this Mm -hmm. are the same people that a few years ago were complaining about things on Facebook and the security of their, you know, and the privacy on Facebook. No, I think it's just because people don't have a scope, an understanding of scope. You know what I mean? And I think that that most of these things, even the gun, the the, the gun debate, for example, is a lot of knee jerk stupidity. Um, the arguments that are made are not the right arguments. Right. You know what I mean? And, and I like I that, said, yeah, there's there's better arguments to sure, make than that. Of course, one. there are. Like it's not about being able to take on your government, or even about the the you know when we're talking about the age of information, for example, it's not about specifically finding terrorists. That's not what the FBI is going to do with that 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 skeleton key right it's not about looking for the needle in the haystack it's about looking at the haystack and i think that that's where people are starting to misunderstand is that you know a guy at the fbi is not just going to be looking at at anyone of of, uh, arabic descent for example they're going to look at everyone right it's it's like the whole argument with the i guess we're just going to make this a political section of the show (laughs) but the whole argument about freedom uh of religion Mm -hmm. you know church separation of church and state Mm -hmm. People complain about how how rigid those rules are. Yeah. But what they don't realize is the reason that we have 
that separation between church and state is to stop the government from oppressing all of us. Mm -hmm. So, yes, if you're a Christian, mm -hmm. you're worried that you know that you can't practice these certain things, right? Mm -hmm. Because you're worried that somebody that's in government doesn't share your religion. Sure. Well, if you aren't willing to protect other people's freedoms, if you're if you're willing to allow them to oppress, you know, Muslims mm -hmm. or Buddhists mm -hmm. or Hindus, mm -hmm. what's to stop a Buddhist, a Muslim, or a Hindu from getting into Congress, Senate, or whatever, and turning that same thing that you broke down against you? Sure. So at at its core, the free the separation of church and state is based in selfishness. Sure. Protecting yourself. Well, and, and I think that's your point is that we've been framed. All these arguments have been framed wrong for yeah, us. Yeah, agreed. And I'm I'm not making a point for any legislation here, mm -hmm. just to do exactly what you're saying. See the real arguments. Yeah, ask the right questions. See the real framework and understand once and for all how broad the scope is of a particular decision. You know what I mean? Um, like you're right. Like the whole the sacred and secular thing, the the, the separation of church and state. Like it, there's a certain there, there's a certain historical perspective that that needs to be lent to the overall conversation that tells people very clearly throughout human history that the combination of church and state has never ever worked out well. Right. You know what I mean? Never in the history of mankind with any civilization or society that we have ever had, whether it's the Romans or the Turks or the Russians or, or, or the French or the Spanish, you name it. Every civilization in human history has never, ever been able to pull off the, com the combining of church and state in such a way that made it so that they could live in harmony. And the reason why is because the moment you allow a political structure, the ability to operate under religious guise, they are now allowed to make arbitrary decisions. Right. And they're allowed to make laws without consent of the people. Like and that's for example, problematic. When when you go back to um people like are kind of baffled, I think, um, from lack of understanding about how the Salem witch trials happened. Yeah. What people don't realize is at the time of the Salem witch trials, hearsay Mm -hmm. particularly um, the evidence of dreams, were acceptable in the courtroom. They're not anymore because we're protected <laughs> against those. But at the time, the reason that the Salem witch trials, well, the reason that they were able to do this is because these girls over here could say, I had a dream that she was a witch. And that was acceptable testimony in court. Uh. And that was evidence against some of these people. And these are the reasons that we have to protect ourselves against our government. Mm -hmm. Because the government is going to inch into any area it can because the people that are in government, they know more information than they than we do. They know about terrible things that are threatening our country. Mm -hmm. And they believe that by the more things that they control, the more things that they get their fingers into, the more things that they can hold in the grasp of their hand, the more secure and the safer they're going to make us. Sure. But that's, I don't think that's true. I go back to Benjamin Franklin. Those who are willing to sacrifice their freedoms mm -hmm. for the illusion of security deserve neither. Yeah. And the most important part of that is the illusion of mm -hmm. security. Sure. Because even in the most uh, oppressive states like North Korea, mm -hmm. there's no safety. Mm-hmm. 
somebody could still attack them. Sure. And I just, I, I feel like what we're seeing right now is we're seeing that line being drawn. Sure. What kind of country are we going to be? Mm-hmm. Are we going to be a 1984 scenario? Mm-hmm. Or are we going to be what we said we always were? Yeah. And it's a, it's a crisis of identity right now. And I think at the core of what's going to happen here is we're going to define our identity, not just through presidential elections. I actually think even though there are the two top candidates, both sides, I don't like Hillary and I don't like Trump. Mm-hmm. I will say that clear. Mm-hmm. I don't like either of them. And it frightens me that either of them lead our country. Mm-hmm. But I think that that is less important than what's going on with Apple and the FBI right now. I agree. I believe that that is the most important thing that is happening in America right now. Well, because it's a clearer barometer of where society is. You know, and I think that I, I had this conversation with a number of friends over the last three or four years, which is, you know, we're finally at a point in our history as a country where the growing pains are done. We're out of our teenage years. You know, we're building we're building what our, our historical legacy is going to be as a country. And And sure, we've had a lot of really bright flashes in the pan up until now, but we all have to remember that... United States for all of its for all of its achievements is only 250 years old. And so in the grander scope of countries um as a sovereignty we're really really young. Right. So we haven't decided who we really are yet. And I think that we're at the precipice of that. I think we're at the point where we really do have to choose and decisions like the FBI versus Apple thing draw a very clear line as to what direction we want to go in. Right. You know, whether or not we're going to allow our political state um, to to control us as a people um, or to have a certain level of access or information that we are allowing them. And that I think that's the biggest thing that we forget as, as a country is that we're allowing that. Right. They're not going in and taking it. We're allowing that. Right. So if we are supporting the FBI's call for Apple to create this skeleton key, we are allowing the government to have that level of access to right. our information. And what we're they say, there's like 13 other cases in backlog. Mm-hmm. So the moment that goes through, they're going to push Next through. One. Sure. Thanks for the precedent. Now we yeah. can push all these through. Absolutely. And I don't want to go on this tangent too long, <laughs> but at its core, the most important thing, regardless of anything that I've said or you have said Mm -hmm. the most important thing of this whole discussion is educate yourself. Yeah. Learn about what's really going on. Read all the sides of it. Make your own decision. Don't have to agree with me. Don't have to agree with you. Mm -hmm. But I'm going to say to all the listeners, pay attention to what's going on around you Mm -hmm. and learn. Yeah. And make a decision on your own, but don't trust what these people are saying on television and stuff because their job is to entertain you. Sure. The news is entertainment. Sure. Its job is to get you to come back. Yeah. And it's just like the newspapers with sensational titles. It's to make you read the article. Sure. Doesn't mean that there's not some truth in some of that they say, but that is not their goal. Their goal is not to provide you truth. Mm-hmm. Their goal is to entertain you. Well, their goal is to get as many eyeballs as they can so they can charge advertisers more money. Right. And so they're a revenue stream. So so they their 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 interest is to create an environment in which people will tune in again and again and again and again right. so that they can prove to their advertisers that they have a certain cons, you know a certain consistent viewership. Right. We have four and a half million people at Tuesday at eight o'clock. So that slot of time is worth one hundred and fifty thousand dollars for every thirty seconds. That's exactly what's happening. And there's nothing wrong with that. We just have to understand that that's what that is. There's no difference between CNN and American Idol to me. 
No, you know what I mean? absolutely not. And I think that that's one of the things that we're seeing right now, which is kind of cool, is that the internet is changing that. And I think that's why a lot of there's a, a lot of um, people trying to restrict the internet and open, you know, all these, you know, all the internet security things that we've gone through. Um, I can't even remember that, you know, they've done that bill where they're trying to open the change the way that the internet works in like five or seven different names. They just Ugh. keep changing the name yeah. and trying to push it through and trying sure. to push it through. Sure. But what we're seeing is we're seeing the proliferation of different ideas being accessible to other people. Sure. We don't have to watch network news anymore because we can watch this guy on mm-hmm. YouTube. Sure. Telling his opinion. Our podcast has given an opinion. Mm-hmm. There's so many other opinions, you know, there's, People who are just you know, different news networks, even. Sure. I mean, look what Vice became. <clears throat> Vice is now like a traditional media company, but when they started, they were just an internet. Yeah. An internet company, and and we're even seeing that to steer away from our political tirade. We're even seeing that with television. Sure. Um, going back to the revenue stream, they don't have to worry about you know Amazon, Netflix, these guys. They don't have to worry about the revenue streams the same way that TV do. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't mean they don't have to worry about it, but not in the same way because they can nail niche audiences mm-hmm. in in a way that network television never could. For example, I just heard this yesterday. Amazon is bringing back the tick. Huh, no way. That's brilliant. Not Warburton as the tick, yeah. obviously, because he's on something, a TV show Closer or something. I guess yeah, it's yeah, yeah. or something uh-huh. like that. Um, but... They're bringing back the tick. That's a very niche audience right sure, there. Sure, sure, sure. Were you a fan? Oh, yeah, of course. I read the comic books, too. Did you? So the cartoon, mm-hmm. TV show, the live action show was just hilarious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anybody that doesn't know what the tick is, just look it up. It was very Max Headroomy in its, in its sensibility. <laughs> it's, it's, it's very camp and very... Super camp. Do you, oh, you know what that reminds me of? Do you remember Sledgehammer? Oh, yeah. Oh, uh, Sledgehammer was genius. I loved that show so much. <laughs> What's funny is I've, I've realized, like, going back and watching, like, 80s TV shows, thanks to, like, Hulu, mm-hmm. who has, like, pretty much Sledgehammer's on there. Oh, genius. Going back and watching these things, there's two things I realized. Number one, like, up until, like, the late 90s, nobody took television seriously. Sure. When you look at the sets on anything, you look at the scripts, all of this stuff, and it's because it, you know, it's still it was still tied to theater. Yeah, a yeah. lot, a lot more tied to theater. Um, like the first episode of Cheers, if you watch the pilot of Cheers, it looks like a play. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's uh, the way they talk, the way it's filmed, it's a play. Uh, but the other thing I realized is, I thought these things went on way longer than they did. Mm-hmm. These shows that you, you know, people the same age as you and I, we remember these things as like they were huge, mm-hmm. like Twin Peaks. Two seasons. Oh, really? That was it. Wow. Two seasons. Why does it feel like it was longer? Right? So you go back and you look at these things. You go, oh, yeah, that. And they go, that was on for one year. And like, huh. Really? That was on? I mean, like, obviously, like, Miami Vice was on for a very long time. Sure, sure. sure. The Simpsons. Um, I mean. But you look at, like, like the A-Team. That was, like, only five seasons. Wow, that's Nothing, crazy. I mean, it's, like, standard now that things go at least, like, ten seasons. Sure, sure, sure. But the brilliant ones don't go that long. Right. Like, I mean, if you look at the best ones, like Breaking Bad. Firefly. Uh, 
Uh, yeah, Firefly. Well, Firefly is a different story though, because Firefly should have gone longer. Oh yeah, you know, I'm Firefly deserved, tried to bring that back. Yeah, I'm, although I'm, he's, that's probably happening. Nathan Finian's probably he's busy on with, Castle. Yeah, exactly. And on top of that, I mean, I'm sure, um, dude, what's it? Joss Whedon is busy doing yeah. things. Although like now Avengers that he's not doing Avengers stuff, <laughs> he can finally start doing Joss Whedon stuff again. Yeah, that's true. That's true. That's true. I mean, that's funny that you say that. Like, I mean, there are certain shows that, that the best shows that I, 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 I love these days are the shows that have arcs that don't compromise those arcs. Like Breaking Bad's a good example of right. that. Um, uh, Battlestar Galactica, the, the new one, I thought I was never saw that very, before. oh, you have to see it. It's I know. really, really good. It's on the queue. And then there's, there are a couple out there, like there's a show that I will take to my grave as one of the best shows made in the last 30 years. Hannibal. Everybody I watched needs it. You told to me see about this. Hannibal. That, that show is one of the most brilliant shows I've ever watched. Wow. Uh, from an aesthetic and, and directorial perspective, it is one of the most well-crafted, most character-driven shows i've ever seen it's it's just amazing so if you haven't seen hannibal you need to see it but here's the problem because it was so weirdly cerebral in its in in its sensibilities it's getting canned after its third season and not because it's a bad show but because people have a hard time watching it so i have a feeling that it's going to be like veronica mars in in four years pick it up yeah netflix is going to eventually pick it up because it's too good a show um, with such an amazing cast. Isn't like, that a beautiful thing to know that there's yeah, a place to yeah, pick these exactly. things up now? Yeah. That, that Netflix is going to go, all right, it's worth it. Imagine it's if they more. had that back in the day when Freaks and Geeks went off the air. Sure, sure, sure. Because or even we all want to know what uh-huh. happened after that summer. Of course. Anybody that watched that show, what happened to Lindsay? Mm-hmm. Uh, even your example of Firefly. Yeah. Dude, like, I'm shocked that hasn't actually, been I, made I'm yet. bummed. I watched that movie and the movie kind of bummed me Serenity, out. Serenity, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was not great. It didn't, it didn't go the way that I wanted it to mm-hmm. because it was less awesome. Mm-hmm. Well, it was attempting to tie together too many loose ends and on top yeah. of that, trying to, to close things out, close things out. And that's, that's a story. It's a wild west story. You don't want your wild west stories to end. You know, right. there's no sunset. There's just the, the continuing adventure. It's an adventure yeah, book. They just keep writing. Yeah. And that's, and that's what was brilliant about Firefly when it was around is that every, Every, every show had an essence to it that was, that was continuous. Like it just felt like you were jumping into the middle of their lives. Right. You know what I mean? And there was no sense of beginning of a story or end of a story. And I it love just that. These people. It's great. Like one of my favorite things uh, a television show can do is to have a memory. Sure. Oh, I, love I that. hate when shows don't have memories. You know, sitcoms are different. Yeah. Cause who really cares if, you know, the Golden Girls remember what they said the week before? Yes, I sure. love the Golden Girls. Um, but when you're watching, other things that memory is of utmost importance talking about favorite television shows Mm -hmm. and one of the most brilliant shows that was ever made was one of the first shows i ever saw that had a memory was homicide life on the street oh yeah david simon (laughs) barry levinson yeah brilliant show the first episode I feel like I've been waiting decades to talk about this in a forum where people will hear this. Good luck finding it. I don't think it's on iTunes. I bit torrented it. Um, not back in the day, but now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the first episode, they have a rookie joining the Homicide Squad. And I think it's the second episode. He gets his first case. His first case is a murdered child. Mm-hmm. And... The vernacular of all the cops is that you never forget your your, your first, first kid. Case, sure, never forget your kid, first kid. First kid, yeah, it okay. haunts you. The next, I think they went eight seasons. The next seven seasons, mm-hmm. they never forget that case. 
amazing. And not in a way like they bring it up all the time where it's where it's nuts. But you know, like season six, he could be talking to another cop, and it, and the the girl that had died, her name was Adina Watson. Mm-hmm. Somebody will make an offhand remark that. In a, in a show without memory, you just write it off as an offhand remark. But if mm-hmm. you've been watching the show since the beginning, it's real. Yeah. Because yeah. you know that. Sure. That actually references something real. You know, somebody gets a case that they can't get over and they go, is this your Dina Watson? Mm-hmm. Oh, and it's just an offhand remark. Like, they're, they're ribbing each other. Mm-hmm. And it's brilliant. And it's just, I mean, there's so many things in that show that were said. That actually changed me as a person. Just great dialogue. Mm-hmm. Another show that was brilliant with memory that's actually a sitcom, How I Met Your Mother. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. The whole show is based on memory, though. So at least on, in that context. The it makes goat sense. thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where it's like he's telling <laughs> the story and there's a goat in the bathroom and then he gets to the end of the episode. And he's like, oh, wait a minute. That wasn't that year. Mm-hmm. The goat wasn't there. But then when you get to that point that he's, t- he's telling a story that takes place in the future. Yeah. And when you get to that point in the show, mm-hmm. the thing that he mentioned actually, actually happens. Actually happens, yeah, yeah. I mean, even to where they, they, they mentioned stuff about the wedding, mm-hmm. in uh, about um, Lily and Marshall's wedding in mm-hmm. season one. Yeah. When they finally get there, mm-hmm. that actually happens. You know, it says, you know, at the beginning they say something, they joke around about him becoming a judge. Mm-hmm. He's a judge by the yeah. end of the show. Yeah. It's like somebody actually wrote all that. Which is, I feel like, as a writer, you should be doing. Sure, sure, sure. Can you imagine a novel that didn't do that? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, you, you you talk about that, but some of our other favorite shows. It's funny because you don't think that that sitcoms do that, but I think some of the best examples of that are in sitcoms, um, like Arrested Development. Jeez, I mean, the how how elaborate those callbacks are, how complex. <laughs> I mean, that, that production crew and that writing staff is amazing to me. I mean, season four, the one on Netflix, whatever. I mean, that one I could do without. I, I it's for even, fans only. Yeah, I couldn't even make it through the entire thing, to be honest with you. I thought there were bright moments in it. But the show as a whole, the first three seasons, were magical in a way that I've never seen a show before. There was, there was so much of a memory in that show. You know yeah. what I mean? Um, yeah, it was shocking. It's unbelievable. And and a show that we both like quite a bit. Memory in not in a painful way. Um True Detective, the first season. Oh, yeah. I mean, I don't like the last basically 20 minutes of that entire season. But yeah. everything yeah. leading up to that, McConaughey's performance, it just brilliant the whole way through. That I whole feel show. like if they had squeezed two or three more episodes I in agree. before that yeah. finale. It felt rushed, yeah. It would yeah, have yeah. been more solid. Yeah, if it if they gave it just at, even just one more episode of Breathing Room, I think Which it would have been great. I think I told you this last week off podcast, but that experience reminds me exactly of reading... Anne Rice's Mem Knock the Devil. Yeah, you did. You told me that. Yeah. Great book. Mm-hmm. I'm actually, it's in my uh, queue to start reading this, rereading this week, Mem Knock. Mm-hmm. It's like 80, 80, maybe 90% of the book. It's just so good. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden it's like, and done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I feel like um, Smilla Sense of Snow by Peter Hogue mm-hmm. was another book that yeah, did I that. Yeah, I don't know that one. And I don't know, that's it was made into a great movie with uh, Julie Ormond. Mm-hmm. Um but I feel like that happens a lot. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, okay, this is where, and I, I know the, the impetus. I don't know. I'm going to ask you because I've been talking a lot. But um, for me, I feel sometimes when I'm writing like a short story, I know where I want it to get. Mm-hmm. And I have the temptation to just jump to that. Sure. But you know you can't. 
Well, it's funny because I look at um, lately. I've been having this. Maybe it's because I'm 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 being introspective about my life these days and realizing um, how how much of a bastard I've been for a while. But I'm going back through and reading a lot of my Russian writers, um, like Dostoevsky. I loved. God, better he's tattooed on your chest, dude. He's yeah, exactly. Um, he he's tattooed on my chest. Um, but he has. He, him, he's a good example. Klima, Kafka, Kundera, the three Ks. Um, not the KKK, but whatever. Um, like, you know, I, I went back and I read the Metamorphosis about, uh, what, five months ago. He was Austrian though, right? Uh, I believe so, yeah. I don't remember. Yeah, I, don't, I think he was Czech, actually. I believe he was Czech. Um, but the one thing that I liked about some of those guys, um, like Kafka in particular, um, with the Metamorphosis was I think that, that the Metamorphosis started at the end. You We're both I mean? right, by the way. Oh, really? Austria, Hungary, Hungary, Czechoslovakia. That's ha, what it says nice. under citizenship. Uh, so we missed we missed the uh, Hungary Aust- connection. Yeah, the Hungary. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which is nice. interesting. I mentioned Hungary earlier randomly. <laughs> I didn't mean to derail you, though. Yeah, but I mean that's 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 what I mean, though. Is that like a? It's funny because I think that that the last short story I tried to write was about this this. You know this princess that would lose her memory every morning um, when she woke up, and it was, there was basically this this her guardian who was trying to get her from point A to point B. But the problem is, every single morning she would wake up, and he would have to remind her of who she was, what they were doing, and why they were going there. Right. And I think that writing that story was my own subconscious way of disciplining myself um, to write the damn story and not just jump to the end. You know right. what I mean? It's such a um, hard <laughs> it's so tough because you already know where you want it to go. Yeah. You know, imagine being, imagine being, um, um, uh, what was her name? The, the chick that wrote the, the, the Harry Potter series. What's oh, her JK Rowling. Imagine being JK Rowling and knowing that because that's, she said that in quite a few interviews is that she started with the last page. You know yeah. what I mean? She had written the last chapter of the book before she wrote any of the other seven books. And those are not short books, guys. Like these, these are 800 to one to a thousand page long books. Right. You know Especially what I mean? that last one, right? Oh, brutally long. So, I mean, that's, that's a good example. Like how, how, how as a writer do you discipline yourself to write seven more novels already knowing what the end's going to be? You I know feel like mean? the worst curse to an artist of any form, maybe any person in general, but is impatience sure, sure being an impatient artist is Ugh. equivalent to being a shitty artist yeah sure <laughs> because I, I i feel like at least um when it comes to drawing mm-hmm. i'm very impatient with drawing yeah i am not meticulous at all sure I, and i think that that's to my detriment i agree whereas with writing i'm a little too patient well i think with writing I think with certain mediums, I'm much more patient than others. Um, for some odd reason, when I write short stories or, or anything novel form, I'm really impatient. And I think it's just because it's more long form. Um, with my poetry, I will stare at a paragraph for four days. You right. know what I mean? So I, I really feel like the, the medium has its own mindset um, and it creates a certain expectation. And I think with poetry, for example, because I practice word conservation um, in the sense that I want to try to say as 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 many things in as few words as possible right because of that it, there's a forced patience there and i think because i i've been a poet as long as i've been a writer and i do draw the distinction between those two things by the way of course. many poets are not good writers and many good writers are not good poets um, there are some that transcend both but my point is that it it was built into me at a very early age that i needed to practice word conservation with my poetry in novel form, I kind of forget about that. And what's funny is it's it's the illusion of choice, uh, which is the more options I have, the more crippling it is. 
Um, and I think with a novel, that's where it really kills me is that I, I just have too many damn options. You know what I mean? Like I can't just narrow it down to three stanzas or five words or one word even in poetry sometimes. You know what I mean? So I think the stuff. hardest thing I ever learned about writing a novel was not that I've completed one. Um, <laughs> yeah, we're still is, working on Charlie. <laughs> is the, uh, the up and down, mm-hmm. the up and down dynamics that are required to sustain a novel. A short story, I say this often, a short story is an arrow. Yeah. You go from the start to the end. You know, there's a little bit of up and down, but there's not the same wave movement. Sure. A novel, you really have to bring people up and bring them down and bring them up because otherwise, if it's just an arrow, mm-hmm. it's a really long, boring arrow. And nobody likes a boring arrow. The only exception to that rule that I can think of in my head is Anne Rind. We talked about Anne Rind last week. The Fountainhead was a freaking arrow. And I haven't read it. Yeah, and, and to be honest with you, if I if it wasn't what it was, I don't think I would have made my way through it. I read it when I was 18. I don't think I could really read it um, fresh now and like it. You know what I mean? Like, I've, I've reread it since, but I there's a sense of nostalgia that keeps me wanting to turn the page versus it just being a good book. Right. You know what I mean? Um, because it's, it's a brutally like arrow like book in that sense you know what i mean something like that and i just get the sense that 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 if i read it now i would probably think something similar you know because there's there's when you're young you need it you know what i mean it's like hearing the sex pistols when you're 17 you know like you get it you're like yeah piss and vinegar you know and then when you you listen to them at 35 and you've never heard them before you're like oh these guys are terrible right what the hell are they talking about why why are their guitars all out of tune you know what i mean what 